Kia ora and welcome to Cinema in Context, where we discuss all things film and the connections between. My name is Jeremy Downing. I'm William Chen. And I'm Sarah Watt. And each month at Cinema in Context, we discuss two films, one current and one retrospective, with some connection. It could be the same director, the same actor, or a similar theme. However, being that it is December, our December episode, it is now a, well, I guess the fourth time that we've done this. Oh my gosh. Our best of the year. So we did, in 2016, our, our biggest film, our most favourite film as a collective was Zootopia. In 2017, we were we were divided between uh, <laughs> a, a Sacred Deer, what's it called? Killing Kill, of a Sacred killing, Deer. I was, thinking, I was thinking Burial of a Sacred Deer. Yep. Killing of a Sacred Deer and War for the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> oh my gosh. And then in 2000... <laughs> Two equally relevant movies. <laughs> I mean, in 2018, it was, do you remember? Mission Impossible. Fallout! It was Mission Impossible Fallout. And we will find out at the end of this episode what the 2019 Cinema in Context... Uh, lowest common denominator film of the year will be. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, that's our plan. And we will return to our usual program in January of 2020. Uh, but yeah, let's jump into our top films. And the way that we are going to be uh, structuring this is the same as last year. Uh, we felt that that worked quite well. Mm-hmm. We're going to go around the table one by one and share our biggest surprise of the year. Our biggest disappointment of the year. Our most anticipated film to come out in the rest of the year, we're actually recording this in November, so we've got a, a month and a bit to go before the year's over. So there's films that are yet to come out. A wild card, something that's perhaps out of the ordinary, what my pe- people might expect. Our runners-up, we're going to have three runners-up each of our film of the year. And then our film of the year. So mm. six categories that we're going to get through. And please be warned, there will be some spoilers. I think we'll attempt to keep it relatively spoiler-free yeah. for yeah. our films because we are going to be covering a lot. But, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. So just be warned, there might be some slight, maybe thematic spoilers. Uh, and before we jump into it, do either, either of you want to contribute anything before we get started? Only to say that a lot of people at the moment, particularly on Facebook, are doing their top films of the 2010s. And, um, and so we've decided not to just go for a straightforward sort of top 10 or a top 100 or anything like that. And I like the fact that our categories... Uh, allow us to to go places into to ter- into the territory of films that maybe were a disappointment or let us down. And I am really looking forward to what you guys have because I think this year in film has been kind of rough. Uh, but without you know without the the big kind of unifying factors like Mission Impossible last year, I think it's going to be an interesting talk. And I also think we've had a bit of a disjointed year. I mean, it's been a wonderful year, but Sarah was not with us for I think half of the year. Mm-hmm. And we had some wonderful guests come in. We sort of threw around different uh, genres. We introduced TV for the first time, <laughs> despite me resisting it for very, very long. Um, yeah, and I think it's going to be interesting to maybe touch on some films that we haven't really had a chance to talk about, whereas we might have talked about sort of those films in previous years. Mm. Okay, nice. let's jump in. Our biggest surprise. I'm going to start with you, William. Do you want to share Ooh. with us your biggest surprise of 2019? Absolutely, Jeremy. So this links to my biggest disappointment of last year, which was the movie Hereditary. Uh, Director Ari Aster, I thought that was a overhyped piece of tosh, especially (laughs) given the third act turn, where it turns something that was beautiful and cryptic and really, really emotionally involving into something that was not. Uh, Lo and behold, Ari Aster came out with a new movie this year called Midsommar. And I don't know what it is. Well, I kind of know what it is. Uh, But I love this movie. It is so much better than I thought it would be. Um, It is a very long movie. But I know, for me, it never really dragged. Like It it felt like I was along for the ride. And um, to very briefly summarize what this movie is about, um, a, a group of young, dumb Americans <laughs> as... Not, you know, not all of them. Oh, okay, okay. Mostly. Mostly dumb uh, grad students, which I love because they're, they're academics, so yes. They should know better. They should know better. They visit a, um, a very remote Swedish town, which is celebrating its Midsummer Festival, the biggest... Version of this festival in 90 years. 
Uh, and stuff, as they say, does go down. Mm. Um, I found this to be very atmospheric, creepy, horrible in a really funny way, because it's a really funny movie. Um, and almost entirely intentionally so. Like, they know what they're doing. Um, and then, of course, the, the ending is, is really satisfying in a way that I thought Hereditary was just not. So that is my big surprise mm. of the year. I fully agree, William. I mean, it's actually my runner-up for film of the year. I'm going to jump mm. in and spoil that right now. Mm. But Midsummer was one of the strongest movies I saw this year. And I really enjoyed, and again, this, I'm going to have to say this cryptically without giving away too much, I really enjoyed the focus of the film being about, um, I guess, what it was emotionally about for the main character. I'll say yeah. that. Mm. And that even though it is set in this cult, it's about something very relatable and something that is not, I don't think we've seen that story very often, at least not dealt with in the way that it was. And absolutely, it ends in the most satisfying way. <laughs> it gives you, gives you what you want, when I didn't even know I wanted what it was going to give me. Mm. So, yeah. I've not seen it, and um, I, I've, been, I've felt a little bit scared of seeing it because I'm not massively into most horror films but I honestly am you'll bring you'll bring making me come round to this idea that I could probably um, handle it so I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to go I mean the most ridiculous film thing in the film is there's a scene where one of the characters goes into a cubicle on an airplane and it's huge no airplane <laughs> bathrooms that big <sighs> and it fits an entire film camera as well yeah. it's like they must have built this thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and there's heaps of leg room on the plane yeah. <laughs> no all right, well, I'm going to hand it now over to Sarah. What is your biggest surprise of 2019? My biggest surprise... Um, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> just an opportunity for a little bit of name-dropping. <laughs> um, earlier in the year, I was in Italy, and I was in Bologna for the uh, Il Cinema Ritrovato Festival. So, my biggest surprise is not actually a film that has come out in, in recent decades at all. It's from 1928, and it's called The Cameraman. And it's a black and white Buster Keaton slapstick comedy film. And I guess the reason it was the biggest surprise for me to have enjoyed it as much as I did is as much as I fancy myself as a bit of a cinephile, I'm a little bit of a Philistine. And I, will, I would rather re-watch The Bourne Ultimatum than um, watch a film noir that I haven't seen before because I know I'm going to have a good time in uh, Waterloo Station with Paddy Considine, and I'm not always sure about these old films. But Buster Keaton, I, f I developed a massive crush on him for about a week thereafter, read everything I could find about him. Um, and look, I mean, I know it's a classic. Um, I know that it plays in film festivals with a live audience and all that. I had the privilege of seeing it in the big open square in Bologna. In th I'm not even joking. 30 degree heat at night time because it had been up to 38 and 40 during the day. And, um, and it was just um, the most wonderful cinematic experience. And it was a real revelation for me to know that I can handle a good old 1928 black and white silent film with all of the slapstick that I thought that I had no, no, no truck for. Um, and it was a wonderful, wonderful time. Wonderful. Well, look, I mean, my, my biggest surprise of the film, beyond my film of the year, which I will not reveal quite just yet, but my biggest surprise was uh, a very recent film. When it was Doctor Sleep. Oh, oh. because I didn't expect it to be good. No. <laughs> and I and I know that there, we've had some discussion on our Facebook chat about it, and mm. particularly Sarah, your husband Doug, has very different views on the film. Mm. But for me, as somebody who's both a fan of Stephen King and a fan of the Kubrick film, it's the scariest film I ever saw. I stayed yeah. up all night after watching The Shining as a 19-year-old petrified of going to sleep and had to watch films all night. Mm. Um, and knowing that Stephen King can't stand the Kubrick film because he feels like it didn't capture the essence of his novel, and, and this film kind of feeling like somewhere halfway between these two worlds, mm. um, I was really impressed. And I thought the acting was superb. I thought the storyline was a wonderful take on, on the Shining world without having to recreate all the beats. Uh, it's not set in a haunted location whether that's a hotel or something that's more confined but was very... it credibly attached to the shining absolutely yeah i mean they, they recreate shots um you know they they recast um you know shelly duvall and the, mm. the child and they even recast um jack nicholson with people that look like them so right. they can recreate they recreate key shots so they can then use them for other scenes in the film. And Ewan oh, wow. McGregor plays little Danny grown up. Yeah. Right. Who of course is called Doc. Right. And of course he's the, the titular Doc, Dr. Sleep. Right, right. Um, and it's, and there's some really, there's some really lovely scenes in the film. And this is, is a spoiler, but he, 
Um, not a spoiler in terms of the major plot, but in terms of his character. You know, he's called Dr. Sleep because he works as an orderly in a, in a hospice. Mm. And he's the one that get, brings peace to the, the elderly people who know they're going to die mm. um, through through a certain series of events. And he's the one that's able to calm them. And it's, mm. it's really lovely mm. and um, equally horrific. Uh, <laughs> and I thought they the, the filmmakers did a wonderful job at at creating a film that connected to its heritages uh, while equally not trying to be something... Mm. It wasn't trying to recreate The Shining. Yeah, right. And I think if it had tried to do that, I would have been unimpressed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, biggest disappointment. I think uh, we'll go back in a reverse direction. So, Sarah, do you want to share with us your biggest disappointment of this year? Ladies and gentlemen, my biggest disappointment of the year is that my uh, one of my three favourite directors of all time, who's probably slipping off that uh, pedestal, <laughs> is um, dear old uh, QT, Mr Quentin Tarantino. And I have to say, my biggest disappointment was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I didn't hate it at all, and it's, it's really unfortunate. I think what happened was, I saw it, was not enamoured of it. And, and strangely, I saw it at Cannes, as you know, and strangely... I reckon half the people at Cannes weren't enamoured of it either, but half were absolutely ecstatic. And then the world became ecstatic about it. And I think that, I think I started to object so much to what I felt was people drinking the Kool-Aid that it's really made it an even more tarnished experience for me, if you know mm. what I mean. And it's not me trying to be different. It's me going, no, but wait, hold on. What about this? Wait, how dare you? This is ridiculous, guys, you know, like that. So, um, look, and we've kind of touched on this. My disappointment about it is that it was overlong in a way that doesn't work. Um, and that it was, um, uh, we've, we've just talked in our previous podcast about his acuity with wonderful long dialogue scenes and all this. And I just felt the pacing in Once Upon a Time was all over the show. Um, the cut that I saw was almost unedited in a way. There were very, very long scenes that started brilliantly and then lost their puff. Mm. Um, and I know the recut was ever so slightly better. Because you, it's worth saying that you saw a different version of the film did. Can, because he went and recut it for the public release. And we thought he was going to cut out half an hour and he was going to make it a bit tighter. And instead he added in a whole lot more Margot Robbie. <laughs> Not a whole lot more, actually, but a bit more Margot Robbie and some Timothy Oliphant and the, the Great Escape scene. Was it Great Escape? Yeah. Yeah, 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 and that which wasn't in the original. So you know, it's a real privilege to have been able to see both. And I don't know though, it just didn't work for me. And I remember at the time going, "This is my ninth favorite Quentin Tarantino Aww. film," which is a real bum because I also carry a sadness about it because I actually wanted to like it and I want to like it, but there's too much that wasn't right about it, and it's made me quite critical of him as a as a filmmaker now, the way he is now. Um, so yeah, we'll see what else he comes up with and maybe he will redeem himself <laughs> for maybe his final film. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we, we had a, a chat about this on the internet and I, I really thought that this was a movie of missed, missed opportunity. I mean, there's clear love on screen from yes. the director about Hollywood and the sixties and movies and all the stuff that, you know, Tarantino has shown that he, he holds so dearly. Yeah. In his, and in his, his commitment can't be, oh I my can't gosh. fault. Absolutely. The, yeah. the world building of this movie, especially the recreation of sixties era Hollywood, you know, Sunset Boulevard and Hollywood in general mm. using not CGI, but recreating old facades mm, and, mm, mm. and making it feel so lived in and real is, it's an incredible feat. Yes, just it incredible. Is. Um, and yet the movie that's draped on top of this is just so languid and wishy-washy. And yeah. there are moments, I felt, of, of brilliance. Yeah. Um, and it peaks really well. It's just, there's so much of that faff that yeah. it's just, yeah, very, very lacking in energy. Mm. 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 William, what's your biggest disappointment? Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> my biggest disappointment is also a horror film. Um... Also linked to a film that I think we, we all really liked um, in previous years, and that is Jordan Peele's Us. Oh, yeah, that was um, a disappointment for me too. Oh, right. Yeah, go for it. Alrighty. Um, just maybe because Get Out was, was such, a, such a direct and passionate and, you know, fresh voice. Mm. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to see what this guy comes up with next. Mm. 
And us is a sophomore effort that is just, it's really muddled. It's too long. I thought it was edited really poorly and it shocked me to read reviews of people who said how brilliantly it was edited. Um, there's a ballet scene near the end of the movie that I was laughing at. And then I read reviews saying, oh my gosh, you know, this is the, the, the best scene of the year. Really? Mm. This? Um, there's some really cool images and really cool ideas in this movie. Basically, um, as shown in the trailer, it's about a family, um, just a, a middle-class American family, uh, that suddenly and terrifyingly gets stalked by their doppelgangers. You don't know where they come from, but there's evil versions of themselves who identify as us. Mm. Um, starts off brilliantly. And as a premise, that's great, right? And it's, it's very... And petrifying. It's very well acted. Mm -hmm. It's very, very creepy and atmospheric. Uh, and then with the reveals, I just, I, I think the worst kind of horror movie is the kind that treats its audience like dummies. And the reveal wasn't, oh, I, I thought it was pretty silly. Um, and to take it seriously, even after the reveal and to go where it goes, it just didn't really feel good watching it. Um, and then, yeah, the, the ending happens and that... That was that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I quite enjoyed the film, but I did watch mm -hmm. it on a plane. And as we know, I, I don't know, we've, we might have talked about this before, mm -hmm. with the limited oxygen, extra oxygen. Extra oxygen yeah. in the atmosphere. I'm a lot more forgiving on a yeah. plane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, I, 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 everything you're saying, I don't disagree with. Mm. I thought the opening shot was pretty impressive with the, ben mm. with the bananas. Oh gosh, is that time of night? Uh, the bunny rabbits. And I thought Lupita Nyong'o carried that movie in yeah. a pretty impressive way. There's it's, lots that's great about her, her it. Her best performance, hands down, yeah. well, she ever. She never really gets to do much. I feel like she's one of those actors that hasn't really had a chance to come into her mm -hmm. prime. Like She's pretty much done 12 Years a Slave, a film I loathe, and she does a CGI character in Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. oh, and, and Black Panther is the love interest. Oh, true. Yeah. This is true. But Elizabeth Moss is in Us, isn't she? So, yeah. so the white family in it and all that, that whole side of the scenes, like very amusing, very shocking, very cool. Mm. But but yeah, I think overall, I would agree with you. It, was a, it, it didn't quite work and that was a disappointment. And again, it's the, as you say, this, the sophomore effort. It's that yeah. the well, danger of bringing out something that's absolutely extraordinary and then having to... <laughs> To, to you know match up to that every time yeah, absolutely it was super ambitious but also super messy yeah mm. well my biggest disappointment of the year is once upon a time in hollywood so really I with you sarah um and i think for all of the same reasons that we've already discussed i mean i did go back and watch it and really enjoyed it the second time mm. but it doesn't need to be that long mm. and i think the ranch sequence is incredible mm. i think the nostalgia you talked about um william absolutely just phenomenal I think the ending is great. I think all the beats are great. And there's some brilliant moments. But my gosh, it's a long film. Mm. And I remember sitting there watching it the first time thinking, I don't know what I'm supposed to be mm. thinking or <laughs> feeling or where this is going. Um, yeah, I, I really... I, I, I think that we talked in our last episode about the, 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 the lack of Sally Menke. Maybe, that, maybe we're oversimplifying mm. that situation. I don't know. Maybe... You know, Tarantino talks a lot about aging directors and how they sort of lose their way a bit. And I do feel like he's becoming indulgent. And it's similar to Peter Jackson. It's similar to George Lucas. It's yeah. similar to Francis Ford Coppola. It's similar to a lot of these directors that they lose some of their no men or women. And they kind of have a lot of yes people around and they have the privilege of being able to do what they like. Maybe. But I might have mentioned before that um, Sally Menke had a, an editorial assistant, that's not what they're called, assistant editor, mm. who, who took, took up the reins when she passed away. I, th I always want to call him Fred Raskin, and that might be wrong, but whatever. There was an interview with him where he said that the way it works is Quentin comes in each night and watches the dailies, and anything that he laughs at stays in the film. Mm. And Which I, is not a good judgment. No, of. it isn't. I mean, I get it. I think some of my jokes are hilarious and I'll replay them to myself. But you've still got to have a degree of context for an audience mm. as to whether uh, that's a bit of perspective. That, you know maybe, what I mean? Maybe yeah. that's why Zoe Bell's in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I do yeah. feel like uh, it's, it's similar to, say, Interstellar, which is it's like a brilliant film in an overstuffed film. Yes, it it's is. like, peer that back and yeah. you would have had a perfect movie mm. um, and it reminded me in terms of his his oeuvre it reminded me most of four rooms 
which is the film with the four different directors making short films, mm. and it culminates with his film, which is by far the br- best yeah. film. I mean, you've got Rodriguez's craziness in the episode before, which is fine, mm. but it's sort of like all these episodes that you sort of need to get some of the context of the bellboy, Tim mm-hmm. Roth's bellboy, to then go into the final chapter, which has this brilliant ending, which is very fast, very violent, mm. and kind of caps the whole thing off, which is exactly what happened in mm. uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, disappointing, because mm-hmm. it could have been my film of the year. Yeah. Right. Uh, most anticipated. I may as well jump into this. Go for since, it. Since uh, I guess it's my turn to start a list. So I looked through flicks.co.nz at the upcoming films, and we sort of mentioned about Star Wars being the big tentpole film coming up in the summer. I'm not really that excited I'm about Star either. Wars. No. I love Star Wars, and I don't know why I'm... I was talking to my, my workman and friend, and we're saying, why are we not excited about Star Wars? Is it because we're all Star wars out? Yeah. And we've been disappointed yeah. before, because yeah. the last couple of spin-off-y ones weren't that great. Mm. So... Yeah. yeah, I don't know. But my most anticipated film uh, links to my wildcard film of last year, which is... Jumanji, the oh next my level. Gosh. Nice. Which comes out on December the 26th, you guys I believe. Are adorable. And I just, <laughs> I just loved that first film so much. I haven't actually watched it again since the cinema, but I have such fond memories. The trailer, this new trailer has made me laugh so much watching it. And I can't wait to return to both the world of Jumanji and these characters and just see how they play. It might be terrible, it could be a total cash grab. With all of the heart of the this the second film gone, mm. but mm. in terms of a film, I'm actually going to go to the movies and watch. Mm. I mean, I'll go see Star Wars. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. I'm actually looking forward to seeing Jumanji: The Next Level. Cute. It also has uh, The Rock playing Danny DeVito, which is amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and who's Kevin Hart playing? Donald Glover. Donald. <laughs> oh, Danny Glover. Danny Glover. Yeah. I'm a little worried about Jack Black. Uh, playing the African-American character and some of his vocal work. I'm like, oh, we shall see. Hopefully the off-cut scenes are the ones that are in the trailer Mm -hmm. and they've managed to tone down (laughs) some of the uh, racial potholes that they could be stepping into. We shall see. We shall see. Uh, William, do you want to share with us your most anticipated film? Yeah, um, of course. So uh, this being recorded in November, my most anticipated movie actually comes out today. Uh, on Netflix, which is very exciting. Uh, I was trying to watch it before this recording, just didn't have time. Um, and it is it is something that's mostly going to be visual, I think, rather than, you know, storytelling-wise. But it is, it is the movie Klaus. Have you guys seen the trailer for this thing? No, but I've seen it reviewed as being absolutely amazing. Is it animated? It's animated, yes. Yeah, I've heard great things. It, it looks like no animated movie that's ever been done before. Um, it's hand-drawn with computer-assisted shading and texture, so much so that some people think it's actually CGI. Uh, but it's it's very much an extension or evolution of what, you know, the Disney Renaissance was back in the 90s. And so the director is Sergio Pablos. It's a Spanish movie. Um, and he was someone who worked on character animation in Hunchback of Notre Dame. I think he was one of the lead animators on Judge uh, Claude Frollo. Um, he worked on Tarzan and Treasure Planet, so he Disney old hand. And then he kind of hit the big time after 2D animation died and did Despicable Me. I think he's credited as one of the creators of that, that franchise. Um, and this is a passion project, hand-drawn about the origin story of, of Santa Claus. Mm. Um, in Spanish? Oh, no, no, it's in English, and this is where my problems lie, because the trailers have all been really American. Yes. Because... It, it looks like it should be a very European-type fairy yeah. tale. And you, you have Jason Schwartzman, who's great, but, you know, hey, I'm wisecracking and whiny. Um, <laughs> and it has Rashida Jones as the main female character, and she's, you know, I'm Rashida... No, that's not a Rashida Jones. <laughs> Rashida Jones being Rashida Jones. Yeah. Um, and it feels really, really off. But the visuals, it's, it's really... The next level of hand-drawn cinematic animation. Mm. I, I cannot wait for this movie. Cool. Mm. Awesome. Sarah, what's your most anticipated film for the rest of the year? My most anticipated film um, comes out in cinemas, I think, today. Um, because we're going to see it tomorrow. Because the director, Martin Scorsese, <gasps> it's his birthday on Sunday. Just like mine, except that Martin is turning, I think by my calculations, 77. 
And uh, so his film, The Irishman, um, we're going to see it tomorrow in the cinema because, of course, it only has a limited cinema release for a week before it comes out on Netflix. But given that Uncle Marty and I are so bonded, uh, we're going to pay <laughs> good cinema money and go see it on the big screen. Which cinema? Uh, well, actually, the Bridgeway in Northcote. So not that big of a screen, but a screen nonetheless. Anyway, it's three and a half hours. And look, you know, as I say, I like to fancy myself as a bit of a cinephile. But if I'm at home over three and a half hours, there are dishes that I can do. There's a cup of tea I can make. I can go to the loo and, and you know, really mess with a long cinema experience. Whereas if you chuck me in the darkened room of a cinema, I'm all good. So that's the way we're going to do it. Um, I've heard funny things about the de-aging process of De Niro and Pacino and, and um, Pesci, I guess, is going to be de-aged. But whatever, bring it on. I've, I've, I've not read any substantive reviews, but I've sort of heard murmurs of greatness. And so it is absolutely my most anticipated film. And it's a little bit like me with Tarantino. I'm, you know, I have probably two Scorsese films in my top ten, and I will love him forever. And... You know, he's done things like Wolf of Wall Street that I found a little more problematic. Um, but I really want this to be good. I really need it to be good. And given that Heat, which as we know also is was the first time that De Niro and Pacino were on screen together in a film. And that is my in my top, actually, that's my top two films of, of my lifetime. So, it's you know, there's a lot wrapped up in The Irishman being really good. <sighs> excellent, excellent. <laughs> Well, Sarah, do you want to carry us on and talk about your wildcard film of the year? Yeah. So, this is pretty random. When we were in Cannes, um, we got to see Werner Herzog's new... It's kind of a drama. It's not one of his documentaries. But the weird thing is, Werner Herzog shot it, if you can call it photo photography, because it's like the most slapdash video you've ever seen, <laughs> but it works. And it's very much in a documentary type style. And it's based on actually a factual situation, but it is ostensibly a drama. Mm. And it's called um, Family Romance LLC, as in limited company. Mm. And I, it's definitely one of those films that, about which the less you know, the better. But it's set in Japan. Uh, and he filmed it during cherry blossom season, so it's a gorgeous film to look at. Wow. And it's about um, a business where you can hire actors to play the roles of anybody that you need played in your life. And so there are people um, performing as fathers at weddings, um, people when the real father can't be there or is dead or is, um, you know, estranged or whatever. Um, people pretending to be husbands and wives and all that sort of thing. And it's an absolutely fascinating film and very, very understated. And as I say, as far as cinema goes, there's not a lot to write home about, but it's got that Herzogian kind of um, charm and uh, not his voiceover or anything, but it's got his charm and his terrible photography. And, <laughs> and it's just like a mind-blowing kind of low-key film. Mm. Family Romance mm. LLC. have no idea if it's going to get proper release. I have no idea where one can find it, but this is the modern world, isn't it? So I'll leave that to the listener. Mm. Mm. William, what's your wild card of 2019? Okay, um, my wild card is a Chinese movie. Um, oftentimes Chinese movies, are, I mean, they fall into the category of wanting to be American movies so much, they, especially 80s action movies. There's so many knockoffs. Uh, or really, really culturally specific Chinese comedies, mm. um, which are really impenetrable and saw in jokes. Uh, the movie I'm thinking of is this movie called Crazy Alien, which came out this year. Um, it was a pretty big hit in China. Um, it was directed by Ning Hao, who has done quite a few of these comedies. I think this is the third in the trilogy of black comedies. Um, but my best description of this would be if there was a Chinese version of the movie Paul. Do you guys remember Paul? Um, with Simon yes. Pegg and Nick Frost? The alien. Yes. The alien. Yeah, 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 Kristen yeah. Wiig. Yes, it's yes. It's a Paul Feig movie, isn't so, it? So, yeah, it is. Um, uh, you know, it, it feels kind of like Paul Feig, Edgar Wright mm. thing. Um, and in Crazy Alien, the premise is that an alien uh, diplomat um, the, the, he tries to make contact with the Americans because of American buffoonery, because this is a satire, he crash lands into China and instead meets up with these two nobodies, these, these you know, best friends slash buffoons, uh, who, one of whom is a monkey trainer at the local theme park. Hmm. And so they think this is just a really mutated monkey and they start training it to do monkey tricks. 
which sounds ridiculous. It sounds very silly and very goofy. And it, it kind of devolves into this... It, it's a Chinese-French farce, if that mm, makes any sense. Mm. Like, it feels very European. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel American, even though the Americans are a large part of it. Mm. Um, it's very much satire done in a way that is, is very, very smart. Um, the, there's, of course, the um, Close Encounters of the Third, third Kind mm. you know, theme, except it's played on traditional Chinese instruments. Nice. There's stuff like an E.T. parody, except it's very, very, for lack of a better word, Chinese. Like, the entire iconography is Chinese. They bring in, you know, the, the folklore of Monkey King, um, local legend, local politics. Um, the whole thing culminates in the big old piss take of of alcoholism in China and mm. and the alcohol industry of all things uh, like on the one hand it is very culturally specific on the other hand it does so in a way that feels respectful of of where it's coming from and the story and the characters and I found it to be extremely charming really well done the CGI is great um, and just a all-round like good weird comedy. Is it accessible though? You've talked about it being culturally specific mm -hmm. and having in jokes and Chinese legends and whatnot. So is it the sort of thing that a non-Chinese audience would get and enjoy, or not uh, to the same extent? I think they would enjoy it because the a lot of the gags with the Americans are very broad. Yeah. Um, again, feeling like something out of Asterix almost. Right. Yeah. Uh, but. With the the cultural signifiers, you do get a lot more out of the movie. Yeah, right. Yeah. Interesting. Mm, cool. Mm. Crazy Alien. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so my wildcard film, I had to actually do a bit of research to find out uh, whether this film came out this year, which is why it became my wildcard, really, because it came out on the 1st of January oh, yeah. 2019. Uh, it's a film that I didn't expect to enjoy as much as I did. It warmed my heart. It brought a song to my voice. I don't know, I don't know what the metaphor is. <laughs> and that is Mary Poppins Returns. Oh, yeah. I loved that film. And I was looking back through my reviews of the year and I thought, yeah, that was a really good movie. I mm. thought there was really strong performances. I loved the music. I guess that's always going to be mm. subjective. Mm. And I thought they did a really wonderful job of paying homage to both, again, probably similar to Doctor Sleep, paying homage to the original film mm. and also to the, the novel heritage of Mary Poppins, mm. but also making it making its own thing. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. Ooh, I agree. If, I if thought it was you... charming and fun and lovely and beautiful and great. I really did not like that movie. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think we Funny. talked about this. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt like it was just a very, very pale carbon copy of the original. That kind of misses the point of the original. But mm. yeah, that's... that's I'm not even attached that. to the original. And yet both times... I saw it twice, the Mary Poppins Returns. Mm. And both times she comes down through the clouds, I welled up with tears. Mm. And I hadn't been drinking. <laughs> so, you know, something weird happened. Yeah, and I'm incredibly connected to the film and, and to the original. And I mm. forgot. I forgot mm. that we... That it was a big part of my childhood, yeah. and so I was pretty happy. Lovely. So I think if, you, if you're if you a fan of the original film, check it out, nice. and you'll either fall somewhere in the camp of William or myself, and if you've never seen Mary Poppins, well then, you know, think about yeah, serious response. to yourself to see it. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> you might well up with tears yeah. with no alcohol involved. All right, runners-up. I might hand this over to you, William, to... Give us your runners up. Now, are you going to rank them, or is it all uh, pretty yeah, much? Yeah, I, I can rank them. Okay, because I'll, I'll give them points, and that'll so, determine our, our final film of the year. Awesome. Uh, so I guess this would be my fourth, third, and second film. Uh, fourth, aptly enough, is Toy Story 4. We've Aww. talked about it at length on our weird Split Continental podcast yeah. episode. Um, that movie, I think it shouldn't work as well as it does, but it's, it's heartfelt in a way that I just did not expect. Um, and it's it's a beautiful epilogue. If if this is, you know, in fact, the end of Woody's story. Mm. Uh, for Woody's story. I like epilogue as well. That's a nice mm. way to frame Toy Story 4. Plus, the movie is beautiful. That lighting, the rain. Oh, very, very nice. Pro probably one of the most beautiful movies of the year. Uh, coming in at number three. Uh, this is a tough watch. Uh, viewer discretion required, I guess. But Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale. Holy moly. Um, what, is guys... it, what is it, Jennifer? Oh, so the Nightingale. Oh, the Nightingale. Oh, yeah, oh, sorry. Um, Jennifer Huslam's. Kent, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, do you guys like Babadook? I never saw it. I never saw it. It'll be, oh. It's too much for me. Okay. And it's... I've heard the Nightingale is not. Is this the Australian one? It is. With it's... like the rape and things? Uh, a lot, yes. Yeah, no, yes. I don't need it. 
Um, so it's, <laughs> I'm it's, not dismissing your, your value of it. I'm just saying I don't need it in my face. It's um, Tasmanian Gothic, mm. um, basically a Western set in Tasmania with a lot of cruelty, a lot of revenge. I mean, it's a revenge Western is what it is. Um, featuring a Irish convict woman um, and her, I, I guess... She hires an Aboriginal tracker to hunt down this British officer that did horrible things. Or English, specifically, English officer. Mm. Um, and through through the journey, they figure out that, you know, what is the cost of vengeance and is it worth it? And the movie is really beautifully shot, really, really tense and terse and dark and foreboding and the characters are great. Uh, it's just a tough watch. I, mm. I think that's the big caveat. Like, it's very violent. Uh, grotesquely so in places. Um, and it ends on a really mixed note. Like, you don't know if it's hopeful, if it's sad. But I think that's the beauty of it, which you bring a lot of yourself into the ending mm. and how, you know, you decide to end the movie. Mm. Uh, and my number two, and this is a really close number one, I think this will show up on your guys' lists, maybe is Parasite, because mm. we, I think we all really enjoyed Parasite. We talked about it at length on the podcast, and it is a masterpiece. That's what I'll say about that. Mm. Great. Excellent. Um, I might jump in with mine, Please. and then I'm let you finish yeah. the runners-up after me, Sierra. So, um, I said before we started this podcast, I haven't been that enamoured with the, the, the films this year, and I don't know whether that's because it's just the cinema landscape, or whether I just haven't been out as much. It's, just not, it's not a great year. It's not been a strong year, has no. it? And, and it's not... I think last year there were some really standouts. Mm. But, uh, you know, whereas this year I feel like there's a lot of... You know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's in your... Even Terminator 4, the, or Terminator 6, or whatever. <laughs> 3.1. Whatever it was. It was a great <laughs> film, but it's yeah. like we've seen that a hundred mm. times. You know, yeah. there's a lot of those sort of scenarios... Um, and so I only had two runner-ups, but then I thought, well, there's actually a movie I watched this year that I couldn't, I started it was on Netflix, the moment it came, the day it came out, I just was tired, I ended up vegetating in front of the TV in front of this, loved every minute of it, and I guess it's continuing the, um, the, the theme of Jeremy's top films, including something to do with a, a major pop star, and that is the Beyonce film Homecoming, oh. which is a filming of her, uh, Coachella 2000 and... 18 performance I think it was mm -hmm. um, and it's it's beautifully shot between her two weeks of that performance where one night they were wearing yellow outfits and the next week they were wearing pink so it's constantly changing between mm. coloured uh, the color, the clothes are changing and interspersed is kind of her journey from having twins to sort of becoming show ready for that show mm -hmm. so yeah a little bit of a left field it almost was my uh, wild card mm. and Mary Poppins was my number three but I actually feel like Mary Poppins felt more like a wild card um but yeah so homecoming is my number four number two oh sorry gosh the numbering is confusing me my my what am i saying second runner-up second yes. runner-up uh is toy story four. Oh, nice um i agree with you william i thought that was a beautiful film i didn't know i needed that movie i didn't really want that movie and yet my gosh, what a special story. And and like I said, epilogue is a nice way to look at it. Because I do feel like Toy Story 3 was the definitive end of the collective story. Buzz is kind of an afterthought on Toy Story 4. <laughs> Most of the other toys are. This is Woody's story. I've and not seen it yet. It's wonderful. Yeah. And, and, and it's really interesting. And, and we talked about this in our cross-continental strange <laughs> patch-up of an episode. Um the, the first two Toy Stories, you know, the first Toy Story was revolutionary and the second one is a brilliant sequel. Mm. But there's still very much that kind of family fear. Mm. You get to the third film and it's, it's dealing with some amazing. really deep themes. Yeah. And the fourth one just takes that and flies with it even further. Wow. And both three and four, this the maturity, of what literally about maturity yeah. and, and old age and, mm. and kind of different stages of life. It's, it's wonderful storytelling. Mm. Um, and my number two film, oh gosh, number whatever, my, first my runner first runner-up. yep is what I've mentioned already, is Midsummer. Mm -hmm. um, I saw that at the cinema not knowing how long it was, so be warned, Sarah, it's two and a half hours long or almost three hours long if you watch this new director's cut that has come out. Oh, wow. Um, it's a long film, and it's R18, and I didn't know either thing going into the movie. <laughs> oh, wow. Went with, um, went with a friend of mine, and, um, and I was completely captured for the whole movie. I got two hours into the film, and I'm thinking... Flippin' heck, I've been... How long is this movie? Yeah, and like I still it's know, still going. I still yeah. knew it had like a decent chunk to go just based on the way the, the rhythm of the film was working. Um, but no, absolutely loved it. Agree with you. I laughed. 
Um, I watched parts through my fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I was completely taken up by the story. Some could argue that it's pretty predictable and it's we've kind of seen it before, yeah. which I think in terms of the surface story, absolutely. But like I mentioned cryptically before, the emotional thread, the theme, the, the, the character story there is something quite unique and mm. I, I found it quite exciting. Mm. Uh, just one more thing about Midsummer: the, the camera is like magic. It is gliding and floating and swiveling in ways that is not physically possible and yeah. Amazing stuff. And, and and just kind of on that note, the um, there's a comment in the film about the bugs. Oh, there's bugs everywhere. Mm-hmm. And apparently, when you go to places in Sweden, there, there are bugs everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like if you lie in the grass, you get bugs on you. I don't know if that's true. So if anyone's listening to this and that's a total load of BS, please let us know. <laughs> but somebody told me who I, who I would trust would know that to be true. So mm. yeah, fun fact. Cool. Sarah, what are your runners up for 2019? Right. <clears throat> well... My fourth film, so my third runner-up, um, I saw at Cannes. It's a French film called Les Miserables, mm. and it was also in the New Zealand Film Festival. Um, and I, it's it's everything we've seen before, but still done incredibly excitingly. It is not Les Miserables, the, the musical. It is not anything to do with Jean Valjean or anything like that. However, it is about the... Um, the poor and the working class and the multicultural, the immigrant communities living in the the banlieue, the outer suburbs of Paris. Um, And basically, it's your good old, I love this stuff, it's basically you've got your your crooked cops, you've got your your criminal gangs, of course, and some of them are sympathetic and some aren't, Uh, and you've got your, your your immigrant children, and you've got this community and it's heating up, heating up um, during literally uh, one of the hottest summers of the, uh, the hottest times of the year. Crime happens, terrible things happen, great things happen. It's incredibly exciting. There is an amazing centerpiece and it was absolutely thrilling. And I can't wait to see it again as soon as I can. So that's my fourth film. My third film... Um, we'll bring it home just for a little bit, i.e. I saw this at home, but it is an American film. And actually, I'm going with Joker. Mm. Todd Phillips' Joker, which um, I sort of mentioned in a previous podcast, could have gone either way for me, and I was a little bit worried. Um, and I thought it was a stunning film. I thought Joaquin was stunning. I thought something that is very, very important to me is that the way that mental illness is handled is, is uh, well, I'd love to say destigmatizing. Let's be honest, there is nothing destigmatizing about it whatsoever in the film. But at the very least, it's being an origin story of somebody who is known to be chaotic and crazy um, and unpredictable and mentally ill. I thought the way they treated mental illness was very, very uh, thoughtful, insightful, and for me, credible. Um, and I thought it was a stunning film, and I thought about it heaps afterwards, which I think is a sign of how compelling a film is. Um, and yeah, it's, so it didn't quite make it to my best film of the year and there's no reason why it should, but, um, but it's definitely up there. Brilliant. My second film, so my first runner up was much more obscure and I saw it at Cannes and I have to be really careful because I do think sometimes when you see an amazing film in an environment like that, sometimes you can feel that it was better than it might've been if you'd seen it in a different context, but I feel pretty secure that Baccarat, um, which is... Holy mackerel, I'm pretty sure it's Brazilian. Okay, well, say somewhere in South America, and I'm fairly sure it's Brazil. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, neither of you have seen it, hey? No. Oh, my gosh. And very few people listening will have seen it. I cannot employ you enough to take a chance on this film. You just have to trust me, because it is literally one of those films you really can't say very much about. If I told you that basically it's the story of a village community and a young woman who returns to the community um, to see her family um, and then strange things happen as the village starts to realise that it is disappearing from maps, that's as much as I can tell you because then it gets crazy And you talked that. You talked about this in our episode when we talked about our, our films from abroad and it's intriguing it's I, I need amazing. to see it amazing and we went in knowing absolutely nothing oh boy and um and it's amazing but it is the sort of film you don't want to so i don't want to spoiler anything but mm. it goes places you never would have imagined and it goes dark um Phew. and it was absolutely thrilling so baccarat is absolutely a um a, a, a big yes go for it yeah Phew. excellent 
Alright, well we've come to our films of the year. Dun dun dun! Who would like to jump in and reveal their film first? Well, mine's already been mentioned, so there isn't a lot to say about it other than to say Bong Joon-ho's oh, Parasite yeah. has to be my film of the year. It is absolutely flawless in terms of script, story, characterization, acting, the composition of every single shot, the production design, the themes, the nuance, and the brutality. It is an extraordinary piece of filmmaking. I'm going to jump in there and say it's my film of the year as wow, well. Wow! There you go. And, and it was I'm Williams so number two. <laughs> was so close. Williams so close. number two. And I, it would I have just, been unanimous. Yeah. <laughs> I just, and it would have been a first. It would have yes. Been a first. But I think, uh, when I think back on this year, it's the only film that has truly excited me in a way that you want a film to. Mm. It's the reason why we watch movies. And yes. I, I watched it at home. I watched a version of it at home. I didn't, it wasn't available at any of the cinemas at the time. I tried to get to the cinemas to mm. see it. And I, I, and I've told the story before, but I had, um, my flatmate's friend was staying with us. Uh, my flatmate was out. She was, my, you know, this friend was just sort of mooching around. And I said, look, do you want to come and watch this Korean film with me? Mm. I think it's a, it's a, going to be a pretty creepy thriller. Mm. And she's like, yeah, sure. And her and I were just glued to the screen. Yeah. And the first half is wonderfully comedic and just this, this, this farce almost, not even a farce, like this building up of kind of the joke it's like a joke building yeah and then you get to that point in the middle of the movie where you know something's got to change yeah. because we've still got half the film to go yeah and uh it, it does so in a way that is um thrilling and terrifying and anytime somebody has to make a meal under duress is going to stress me out <laughs> yeah um, well watching a youtube tutorial yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um and but equally it isn't too ridiculous and mm-hmm. i think We've talked about again this in the uh, in the Snowpiercer. Did we do an episode on Parasite? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we did. Snow Piercer. Yeah. Oh, we've talked about this movie, of yeah. course, uh, which is probably why I watched it. Well, what a it. wonderful plug to listeners who might yeah. want to go back a couple of episodes and listen to our Parasite episode. But don't listen to it before watching Parasite. Oh, yeah, there's some no. wonderful surprises, and um, I thought, my gosh, that is one of the most exciting experiences I've yeah. had watching a film. In a long time, and like I said in that podcast, it's everything that I wanted once upon a time in Hollywood to be, and wasn't. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, yeah, bravo, Parasite. Um, I'm absolutely confident in giving it my film of the year status, and I don't think it will be dethroned by Jumanji Part 3, next level. Um, <laughs> but we shall see. Try we us, shall William. See. What's, your, what's your film of the year? Oh my gosh. Um, already... So the uh, War of I, the uh, Planet of the Apes Five. <laughs> well, it was Jumanji Part Three, unfortunately. Is it really? Uh, no, no. Oh, the, movie, oh, oh. the movie hasn't even come out. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I, I really struggled with this one because I think Parasite is, it's a better movie, on almost all fronts. Sure. But this, my number one pick of film of twenty nineteen was the movie where my friends and I went to see it. It was a late night showing, and collectively we were just blown away like we we ended up being in the car kind of trying to talk about it but not really being able to i know sarah you've watched this film and we may have differing views on this but it is apollo 11. oh yeah so um it's a, it's a documentary uh todd douglas miller yeah. uh, so basically uh it's funny because uh, last episode we were talking about you know hitler and um, Inglourious Bastards and, and Jojo Rabbit and how you you kind of expect historical events to be portrayed in a certain way in mm. the film. And we all know that in, 19, in the summer of 1969 uh, the US had a leg up in the space race by launching Apollo 11, the Saturn V rocket and successfully landing Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon ahead of the Soviets. Mm. And that being said the the story and the footage mm. of what it takes to get there. I, I know my friends and I, we were all literally sitting on the edge of our mm. seats. Um, maybe because this was also an IMAX screen and we had to sit there to yeah, yeah, see, yeah. see the image. <laughs> um, but just, I, I don't think any movie I've seen in my life has given a... a the, the snapshot in history mm. of the excitement of being at a point in human history where everyone understands that after this point, the world is forever changed. Yes, that's a lovely point. 
Um, yeah, because so much of the footage, uh, there was a lot of footage that was um, recently re released, right? It had been in secret government archives, um, and it was 70mm, which is amazing to look at. Mm. And most of this footage is the crowd, right? Mm. The, the Americans, like, happy women, men, children, dressed up in their Sunday finest, in camper vans, mm. with all their video cameras set up with cameras, and just wanting to be part of history, mm. and the excitement and the buzz in the air, and this is even before, you know, ignition starts, and then of course, once ignition starts, the, the footage you see of the spacecraft, and the, the chatter between the, the crew of the craft, and the ground control, and the people, you know, basically performing super heroics using trigonometry. Mm -hmm. They had no calculators. It was rows and rows mm -hmm. of human computers mm -hmm. with pen and pad paper. Mm -hmm. And the incredible things they could do with math and science. Pure math, pure science. And accomplish these feats. Remarkable and ought to be captured in a way that was cogent, that mm -hmm. was exciting, and that was thrilling even though this event happened, you know, in 19... Uh, literally 50 years ago. Mm. I thought it was by far the, the best time I had at the movies this year. Wonderful! You make such an interesting yeah. point about how contemporary the film is. Mm. Because we've seen Apollo 13 and other films, and we've seen people land on the moon. And even if we've seen historical things told now, there's always that element of... Um, foreknowledge or, or backwards knowledge or however you want to put it that you're making the film now but you're pretending it was about then whereas what you've just described is really meaningful mm. because it is literally looking at those people as they were then and experiencing the awe and delight and excitement that they had not actors acting like they're in awe mm. with excitement and delight and that's really compelling and you're so right also that for a moment there, because I have seen it, and it was great. I just didn't, I wasn't bowled over, but it was great. You do sort of think, oh my gosh, are they going to make it? <laughs> and it's like, wait, yeah, no, yeah, they are, <laughs> because that's why we're here. But yeah, you know, watching it. There's a scene with Lander, and they're, they're verbally counting down the amount of fuel they have in the Lander. And they just make it on the moon with something like two seconds left. And you're like, this is crazy. Yeah. Oh, yes, good, good call. Excellent. I need to see this film because I've heard, not just from you, but one of my very best friends had, had the same reaction. Yeah. Just just completely enraptured and captured. Yeah, enraptured, yeah. And in, in whatever. Uh, just into this movie. Uh, so, yeah, fantastic. And look, wrapping up our conversation today, our, our clear collective... Uh, and and I, I see the lowest con common denominator at the start of this, this podcast. This is, the but this is the Palm Door winning... <laughs> you know, top film of Cannes on its premiere, mm -hmm. solid as Korean director who knows what the heck he's doing. And I think it's definitely the biggest consensus we've had, even if it's maybe one yeah. point off yeah. um, with, with Williams. But I mean, you still had as your number two film. Yeah. So Parasite is our film of the year. Yeah. Uh, and I think what a wonderful film of the year, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> no, th thematically very, very appropriate to our times. Yeah, yeah. true, yeah. true. So, yeah. There you have it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Cinema in Context. If you enjoyed our podcast, then please share it with your film-loving friends. You can listen to Cinema in Context through SoundCloud, Stitcher, Radio Public, and Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, which are great places to let us know what you think of this episode, or give us suggestions for future films to discuss and compare. Look out for our next episode in a month's time, which will be the new year, January 2020. And until then, ka kite ano.